Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Modern technology has given us the gift of knowing how the weather will be on any given day. It's something most of us take for granted when we grab the umbrella or slide on the sandals. Yes, summer will come. But in the north, climate change has made the weather weird. And it's there that the technology falls short. That means a litany of challenges for people living there, one that has a ready, if expensive, fix. Augie Jones was raised to know his worth by parents who were at the forefront of the fight for civil rights in Nova Scotia. The heated exchanges he heard them having with friends prepared him for his latest role, fighting environmental racism. Me, I was just listening as a little boy and I knew that people can get into what we would call controversial conversations and eat food and drink wine and then play music and you could still be friends. And there are some challenging words for Canada's Minister of Climate Change from a panel of people meant to give him unvarnished advice. They've outlined where the country is falling behind and what it needs to do. We'll hear from three of them. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you solutions for saving the planet. I'm Laura Lynch. How many of you pull out your phone to check the weather in the morning? I certainly do before I do anything else, before I even get out of bed. I open up the app. I look to see what the highs and the lows are going to be. I look to see if it's going to rain or even snow. And then I, and probably you, plan what to wear and how to get to where we need to go. Of course, the forecast isn't always 100% accurate, but some parts of the country have much more weather data to go on. And that means more accurate forecasting. In the north, on the other hand, well, some say Canada isn't collecting enough information in that part of the country. And people in remote Inuit communities say it affects everything from hunting to health to their ability to prepare for climate change. What on Earth producer Rachel Sanders is here to tell us more. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Laura. So this story was brought to us by a listener. Uh, Why don't I let him introduce himself? Hello, my name is Robert Way. I'm a Halunangayut from uh, Central Labrador, and uh, I'm also an assistant professor of geography at uh, Queen's University. And my research and teaching is very much focused on climate change, and particularly as it relates to the types of impacts that we see on northern ecosystems and on people. So Robert spends time both in Labrador and in Kingston these days. You heard him use an Inuitut word to describe himself. He's of mixed ancestry, descended from early northern Labrador settlers and Inuit. He got in touch to tell us there are gaps in weather and climate monitoring in northern Canada. So when it comes to daily weather, he says people in northern communities need information about four things. Precipitation, snow depth, air temperature, and wind speed. 
And he says since the early 2000s, the amount of weather information in northern Canada has changed. There are fewer weather stations gathering information about all four of those variables. And in the north, there can be hundreds of kilometers between stations. So there are gaps in a lot of places when it comes to details about the daily weather. That sounds like huge gaps. How, how does that lack of local weather information actually affect people? Well, Robert told me some stories about his home community in Labrador. First of all, he says when people are heading out on the land, they need to have a sense of what kind of weather to expect. For example, if they're leaving their communities and going out onto sea ice in the winter. So your community may be minus two during the winter time, as an example, but you go out on the land and you get to an area where the temperatures were slightly above that. And so instead of being snow on top of the ice, you end up encountering water on top of the ice. You end up encountering bad ice in an area, even though maybe the community you left was good ice. And so not having a great idea all the time about what kind of conditions are actually going on can introduce hazards into people's travel on the land. So that's just one example of the dangers we're talking about. Another one, information about wind speed and direction helps boaters stay safe in the warmer months. And he says these issues can sometimes be a matter of life or death. I'm sure they can be. I know in the past we've covered stories about men out on skidoos breaking through the ice, resulting sometimes in death. Mm. Um, but, but Inuit have been using traditional knowledge to understand the weather for generations, haven't, haven't they? What, what's changed? Yeah, that's right. And that's something I heard about from Chaim Anderson. She's the community climate change liaison with the Nunatsiavut government. She says the warming climate has changed things. There's still that Inuit knowledge aspect and people are still very much able to see if there's bad ice or know when bad weather is coming or, um, you know, these different changes in the weather and how that impacts the environment. However, it's becoming unpredictable and that poses a lot of risk to communities. So obviously that makes accurate weather forecasting all that much more important. Now, something I do know is that a lot of northern communities rely on air travel, and I'm betting that the lack of data is a challenge when it comes to planning flights. It is, yeah. Robert Way specifically mentioned Nutrition North communities. Those are places where the government provides extra support because of the high cost of food, and usually they're places that lack year-round road access. So these communities tend to be the most remote. They tend to be often flying communities. And flying communities are very reliant on having reliable weather forecasts for the aircraft, usually coming from the south into those communities to bring in things like food, to get people in and out for hospital flights, things like that. And so when there's a lack of reliable meteorological observations in those areas, you have operators of these aircraft having to make Decisions to, say, cancel flights because they don't know what's going on uh, in, in the community or because the weather forecast is bad. Now, I can say, Rachel, that I remember from years ago, I tr- flew from Yellowknife to Iqaluit once, and th- that was before things had become so unpredictable now. And that flight was delayed and delayed and delayed, and there was some argument that it wouldn't go until the next day. We did eventually land, and there was a snowstorm happening when, when we landed, and I can get a sense from that of, of just what kind of uh, unpredictability there is there now. I, I mean, is it really disrupting things that much? 
Well, yeah, I talked to Philip Earle about that. He's the vice president of Air Borealis. That's an airline based in Goose Bay. They run passenger flights in Labrador and parts of Quebec and deliver food via their twin otter plane. They do use weather data from several sites on their route that are run by Nav Canada, not-for-profit agency that monitors airspace in Canada. Airport infrastructure in these communities is very basic, he said. We're talking short gravel runways, which also makes things really challenging. And Philip says climate change is making weather strange. That's a good way to describe it. I mean, we know that the weather uh, in Labrador this winter has been strange. It's been really warm. That's right. Yeah. So there's less sea ice that affects wind and precipitation. Environment Canada says these changes are likely here to stay. And Philip says unpredictable weather means flight delays and cancellations. So it may be foggy, drizzly, low ceilings in the morning because of the onshore flow. The wind changes uh, quickly. It improves, but only for a brief period of time. We call those weather windows, and sometimes because of the lack of real weather information, not having access to that detail means that a flight remains on weather hold for safety reasons, where in actual fact we may have been able to operate a flight. How frustrating. So flights get canceled when they don't need to be canceled because there isn't enough real-time information to know whether it it is safe to fly. That's right, yeah. Safety is the airline's top concern. They won't fly if there's a risk of poor weather. Rex Howell lives in Nain, Labrador, which is only accessible by plane at this time of year. Rex is the manager of Nunaziavit Operations for Smart Ice. That's an organization that combines traditional knowledge of sea ice with technology to help people make more informed decisions about whether to travel on sea ice. So you can imagine he's very attuned to weather and temperatures. He says cancelled flights have a profound effect on people in Nain. I've seen it one time where we've had a plane not make it into Nain because of fog. It was like three weeks. It was 20 days. So, you know, the stores were getting pretty bare on, on fresh stuff, you know, eggs and milk and bread. So you're trying to stretch it out, but so is everybody else. And sometimes it's interesting when you go down to the store and you see there's no milk, there's no bread, there's no bananas, no strawberries, anything, right? So um, the weather is a huge factor here on the coast. And Rex says those food deliveries are important because the impacts of climate change sometimes make hunting and fishing more difficult as well. The ice season is happening later and later. Now, a lot of people aren't feeling safe on the sea ice. When it was thick enough, you know, they can go out and get char or, or go out and get a good sized seal that will feed their family for two or three days. So when you can't hunt a seal or fish for char, you have to buy groceries. That costs more. Plus, Rex says there's a cultural impact when people can't practice their tradition of hunting. So climate change is making these grocery deliveries more critical and more difficult. And the lack of weather data makes those flights less reliable. This is a vicious cycle. I mean, you have the problem with not being able to fly in and then the lack of food and then the inability to hunt all tied together with climate change. It becomes so complicated But when we've talked about the flights in terms of those factors, they're also essential for other reasons, aren't they? They certainly are, yeah. I spoke with Leela Evans about that. She's the member of the House of Assembly representing the district of Torngat Mountains. That's the most northerly district in northern Labrador. Leela Evans is a member of the Nunatsiavut Inuit. Those small communities in her region have nursing stations but no doctors. So she says people have to fly to Happy Valley Goose Bay for testing, for things like chemotherapy. People have to leave a month early to have their babies in hospital. 
So Air Borealis runs four flights a day dedicated to these medical travelers. And when those flights are delayed, that has a huge impact. Right now we have a lot of patients get delayed in Happy Valley Goose Bay, where the major hospital is when they're trying to get back home. And a lot of times we have people could be weather delayed for five to seven days. And their families and their children are home. They need their support. Also, these people who are delayed are missing work. And what really bothers me is because of these delays, some of the patients who need to travel out for treatment, if the weather is forecasted to be bad, they actually will cancel their appointment. So that's impacting their their overall health. But if they're stuck out there trying to get home, what's happening then is they're stuck there and it impacts their mental health, their emotional health. If they can't travel, if we don't have reliable transportation for our passengers and our patients, they have to choose between their physical health or their mental health. And that, to me, that's what's really, really upsetting. Patient travel is a human right. It really, really is. You know, you you think that people who who are living in more remote settings have resilience and that they know how to deal with these kinds of distances that they, they live in, but... As she said, when you're a patient, it's a different thing. You're much more vulnerable. So I can understand why this, this could be so difficult to, to accept. It, it's really heartrending to hear about. It really is. Um, and, you know, flight cancellations affect people's access to other services as well, not just medical care. Leela Evans points out that all of this has an economic impact. Canceled flights and other services cost money. Philip Earle at Air Borealis says the government has been making some improvements, new weather cameras at some small airports, for example. But he and others say those improvements aren't keeping up with the pace at which the climate's changing. Boy, that sounds familiar. Climate change. It's making everything so much more urgent, so much more unpredictable, isn't it? It is. Leela Evans is already seeing the effects of climate change in northern Labrador, Ice formation, snowfall, temperatures, they're all more unpredictable. And gathering data about weather conditions isn't just about having more accurate daily forecasts. It's about making sure we have an accurate baseline. You can't understand the change that's happening if you don't have accurate data. I was a biologist and I did a lot of environmental work. So, you know, I understand the importance of baseline data for any kind of any kind of construction, any kind of mining projects, any kind of even putting in a, a highway. And what's safe? Like what projects should be approved? What projects need additional mitigation because we're experiencing climate change? And Robert Way agrees. He says without adequate data, we might prepare for climate change in the wrong way. And he says that can have a cost as well. When there's uncertainty present, like when you have a big range of uncertainty about you know, what the the future climate is going to be like and what type of extreme events you're going to have to prepare for. It means that in some cases you might actually choose as part of an infrastructure project to over-engineer even in some cases, and that has a cost as well. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it, but I, I, you know, that stuff is important, but I really tend to care more about, you know, the impacts it has on people and, and safety on the land and things like that. That, that's understandable, but we are all about the solutions at What on Earth. So let's go to that. Is, is there a quick solution, something as simple as more weather observing equipment? Well, Philip Earle at Air Borealis says, yes, more would help. And weather monitoring needs to be consistent and uniform at airports in northern communities. 
Robert Way has taken matters into his own hands. The federal government has given him funding over the past few years to set up weather observing stations in Labrador, in places like Northwest River, Black Tickle and Rigolet. Other communities are doing it themselves. A lot of communities are leading this effort themselves. People would be surprised just how how many efforts are kind of coming up across Canada of communities essentially setting up their own weather station or setting up their own uh, observer programs because there's these gaps and they need, they want this information. They want to know what's going on. You know, as positive as some of those developments are in some ways, the downside is a lot of that information isn't finding their way into forecasts. Environment and Climate Change Canada says it uses some of that information and it is looking at using more. Robert Way says he has been making some headway with that. And he says there's an opportunity here for local people to be hired and trained to do the work. So then they could be hired, they get new jobs that would help in the environment and help with the weather forecasting. It sounds like it would be a (laughs) win-win. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Another step, though, that Robert Way would like to see the government take is to install weather radar in northern Canada. So weather radar helps track rain and snow and other precipitation. It helps meteorologists predict when extreme weather is coming, tornadoes and severe wind, for example. I continue to be astounded that we lack weather radar coverage across, you know, huge swaths of the north. Um, The difference it would make for even airline travel, especially to remote communities, would it's kind of hard to quantify how much value that would be compared to a relatively small cost investment. So all of Canada's weather radar is concentrated along the southern part of the country. Where we live. Right. That's right. (laughs) Environment and Climate Change Canada says radar is usually used to forecast precipitation. And because of the nature of Arctic weather systems, it is of, quote, limited usefulness for weather prediction in the north. So because of that and because it's expensive to operate and maintain weather radar, the ministry sees little justification to add weather radar to the north right now. But Robert Way points out that Alaska has weather radar coverage and Canadian weather forecasts benefit from it. What else does Environment and Climate Change Canada have to say about all this? So the ministry says the most useful forecasting tools for the North are high-resolution computer models and that it gathers information from satellites, aircraft and weather balloons for those models. It's also planning to install new infrastructure to gather satellite data in several provinces and territories over the coming three years. But... Robert Way says satellite data and models don't replace ground-based observations. He says they're not providing people with the real-time information they need. Now, weather monitoring is something, it's an issue, obviously, in the north. Um, We've seen it be an issue in other parts of the country. But this is something that's happening around the world more and more as the climate changes. Yes, this came up at the International Climate Conference in Egypt last fall, actually. There is research showing that accurate weather forecasting saves money and it saves lives. And United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced a plan last fall to set up a system to give vulnerable countries early warnings about extreme weather. And what we're talking about here is vulnerable communities in Canada, both in Labrador and across the north. And I'm betting one thing about all of this is that if you did improve the weather forecasting in the north, I bet it would have some benefit down here in the south. I've heard that that is (laughs) absolutely the fact. Yes. Well, another reason to pay attention then. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. And yes, that story came to us because a listener got in touch. And we love it when that happens. 
So do you have a climate change story to tell from your community? Email us, earth at cbc.ca. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, how to confront climate challenges in Canada. Advice that Stephen Guilbeault cannot ignore because it's the law. Nova Scotia has been at the forefront of the conversation about environmental racism in Canada in recent years. Politicians, documentary filmmakers, Hollywood actors have all explored how black and indigenous people in the province are disproportionately affected by pollution and other environmental hazards. And those hazards also include the impacts of climate change. Now the province is taking action with a new panel that will dig into the problem and recommend solutions. Augie Jones is the first member of that panel. He's the principal of the Ackerley campus of Nova Scotia Community College. And his family's legacy of fighting for black and indigenous rights makes him uniquely suited to tackle this problem. Augie Jones, welcome. How are you, Laura? I'm fine, thanks. Now, for listeners who don't know, can you tell me about some of the well-documented historical examples of environmental racism in Nova Scotia? I mean, obviously, Dr. Ingrid Waldron, uh, in conjunction with Elliot Page, put out the documentary, There's Something in the Water. And that talked about um, Boat Harbor, which is uh, in Pictou County, where there was a pulp and paper mill that was basically polluting a body of water that was next to Pictou Landing, uh, Mi'kmaq Nation. And then in that same documentary, they focused on a land uh, dump that was a garbage dump that was put beside a black community in the Shelburne area, which is on the south shore of Nova Scotia. I would also, and one of the things we're going to focus on too is Africville. So for those people that don't know, there was a black community that was along the Halifax Harbor that was eventually bulldozed in the late 60s. But at the time, there were real issues and we wouldn't have called it environmental racism at the time. But when we talk about the public health kind of intersection of, you know, the ways that you deal with communities and create toxicity in that community, um, Africville would be one of the early examples of uh, what we're now coining environmental racism. And in both of those examples, um, and you refer to the first one, the documentary film made by Dr. Ingrid Waldron and the actor Elliot Page, it raised the profile of how these kinds of uh, pollution and degradation are, as we said before, disproportionately affecting uh, black people, indigenous peoples in the province. And so that's the historical record. I'm wondering where you see examples of environmental racism in your province today. Well, Laura, if I could, I mean, I'd like to just kind of go back to the to the land thing because today really is connected to the past and 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 so in the history of Nova Scotia we have like black loyalist communities and we have um, Mi'kmaq communities that have been put on reserves those communities are affected and affected still to this day and also you know the influx of people of African ancestry to Nova Scotia is unique to the country. You know, the black loyalists would have came to Nova Scotia in the 1700s. So they came up and were given the worst land in Nova Scotia. And most little towns in Nova Scotia or most cities, there'll be a black community that is like put away way, way, way in in this windy, windy road on infertile land. 
and in 2023, there's a direct connection to some of the areas in uh, Nova Scotia that are being affected by environmental racism, being affected by climate change. But those <laughs> those communities have been there for 300 years in a, in a place that was not uh, environmentally safe. And so they're way more exposed in 2023 based on the decades or centuries that they've been in an unfavorable environmental condition. All right. And, and so you talk about the the past being tied to today, and that's true for you personally, because your parents were major figures in the fight against racism in Nova Scotia. Your father, Rocky Jones, was a civil rights lawyer and an activist in Halifax. And for listeners who may not be familiar with him, can you describe the impact he had? Well, yeah, and I would say it would be both my dad, Rocky Jones, and my mom, Joan Jones, because I grew up in a household that you know, uh, contrary to some of the ways that that um, my dad was portrayed early on as being like dangerous and a member of the Black Panther Party, he was actually not that. He was very much an intersectionalist type of person that was very much into what we would call civil rights or human rights. And so that included obviously people who were African Nova Scotian and included um, Black newcomers who came from the Caribbean and, and the continent to Nova Scotia. It included the Mi'kmaq Nation. He was very connected to the chiefs in the area and 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 their, you know, fights for human rights. And then also people who were in the criminal justice system and what rights they had. So I grew up as a little boy sitting around tables of, you know, conversation, which people may now deem crunchy, but they were just, <laughs> you know, they weren't for me. I was just listening as a little boy and I knew that people can get into what we would call controversial conversations and eat food and drink wine and then play music and get along. And it didn't matter that you were in a tough conversation. You could get out of it and you could still be friends. And so I, I kind of grew up knowing that that is a possibility in, in every type of conversation, including this conversation around environmental racism and climate change. And then, and then the other thing about it, Laura, I would say, is I grew up being very community connected. Um, what I bring to this panel is not a real expertise on environmental racism at all. What I do bring is an expertise in connecting with community, and especially with marginalized communities. And there's a way that you have to do that. And I very much watched how my parents did that. And I apply that now when it comes to dealing with the Black community, dealing with the Mi'kmaq community, dealing with the LGBTQ plus community, dealing with the disabilities community, or dealing with the newcomers community. There's some ways that you have to do that to make it authentic. And, and that's actually what I got from my parents. And that's what I bring to leading this panel. Well, and I do want to get, you, you did mention your mother, Joan Jones, and I, and I do want to give her her specific due. Was there anything special that you learned about fighting for justice from her? Yeah, I did. And that's a great question, Laura, because it's actually what I'm doing with the panel. My mom was an expert on panels and committees. Oh, wow. My dad, <laughs> she was. like, and, and it's such a behind-the-scenes thing, but um, my dad was definitely in front of the camera, and, and he was good at that and the charisma. I would say that my mom might have been the brains behind the operation, which which many women are. Um, when, you know, their husbands are celebrated, there's often, you know, behind the scenes, this real, uh, you know, information and, and support and, and guidance that's given by the matriarch of the family. My mom was very much that. My mom did a lot behind the scenes and I kind of learned how to sit on committees and, and what your role is. And it's it's to listen to people. It's to come up with action items. And why are you doing that? 
to help the community. So it's behind the scenes, but you have a mandate. You're meeting to have those crunchy conversations. You're meeting to get into the meat of things, but ultimately you're trying to come up with solutions that affect the community. That's kind of an underrated superpower, isn't it? Being able to deal with committees. <laughs> no, it, it really is. And, 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 and a lot more action, I think, Laura, happens in that committee setting than it does out in front of the camera or protesting or being front-centered. If you think about the way government works, it definitely works from behind the scenes. And not that that's a negative thing. It's just part of the whole mosaic that you have to put together as far as a change maker. So my mom was an expert committee member. And it's funny because when she passed away, Laura, not everyone liked her on the committees. And that's what I learned too. <laughs> like, you know, like it, you're not there to be populist. You're not there to make friends. My mom would often bring up viewpoints that she heard from community that might not have been popular, but she felt it was very important to, to bring it to the table. All right. So you've inculcated all of this and now you've got this role, the first member of a panel addressing environmental racism in Nova Scotia. Yes. What are you hoping to achieve? Well, I think the in my mind, you know, initially it's to we're looking at seven or eight experts to bring to the table. You know, we're looking to make sure that we have historians or someone with that background of history, because as we know from environmental racism, we have to connect it to how people came to the land, how they were treated when they were on that land, including, did you put a dump by that land? Did you have some type of company with industrial waste flowing through that land? What was the sewage on that land? So we need a historical perspective. I also think we need a policy law perspective. You know, what, what did companies have to do? What regulations and laws were in place and policies to protect the people or not protect the people? And then the third piece that we would really like to have is a medical expert, someone that can look at medical data because we know that coming out of environmental racism and some of these negative public health toxicities that can happen, what happens to people is they get sick. So we can look through data to see what happens in a community when they have bad sewage, when they have bad water, when they have a dump beside them, when they have industrial waste being put through their community. We really have some data that we could gather out of that, which is actually health data. And then most importantly, which I don't want to put to the end, but we want community experts, right? We want people who are from the African Nova Scotian community and have done this work and, and thought about the environmental effect on the Black community in Nova Scotia. And we also want the Mi'kmaq Indigenous voice of, of people from community who have been doing this work. They've written to government, they've, they've advocated. And so that eight-person panel is a mix of community, law, slash policy, historians, and people in the medical health field. So um, we know from previous uh, reporting that we've done on the program, that climate change does get inexorably tied up with environmental racism, that, the, yes. that those who experience environmental racism can often feel the sharper effects of, of climate change. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, you grew up in Nova Scotia. What impacts of climate change are you, you noticing in the places you spent time in as a child? So my dad is from Truro, Nova Scotia. Truro is, is a, is a low-lying town at the best of times. But my dad grew up in an area called the Marsh. And literally, it was a marsh, and the Black community was there. Well, now with global warming, the city of Truro is, is dealing with more flooding than it ever has before. And the Black community, which used to be thriving, there's not that many people live there anymore. And partly it's because of this marsh area 
is now virtually unlivable because of the amount of flooding that is happening in that area. Mm-hmm. So think about it being called the marsh decades ago. And so now in 2023, it's a very exposed area to climate change and flooding. Now, there you see the link. Now, uh, just to, to wrap things up here and come full circle a bit, I want to I wanna wrap it up by bringing it back to your parents. And I'm wondering what parallels you see between your parents' fight for civil rights and the current fight for environmental and climate justice here in Canada and around the world. Yeah, I, I, I remember when my dad passed away, and, and I always thought civil rights to me was like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. And I really... That, that those two words resonated with, with Black America. And then when my dad passed away and I'm at the funeral, I really kind of saw the variety of people that were there that were saying that he had an effect on them. And then I thought, oh, so civil rights is the right to civilians. And, and that's intersectional and that's inclusive. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. So now for me, I think doing that same work it, decades later, it's more to make sure that I'm speaking on behalf of citizens and taking their voice forward in the most um, authentic and and first voice way so that they feel the change. So ultimately for me, I want the panel and we have a year to do our work and give recommendations to the Nova Scotia government. I'm not really looking for the approval of the government, to be honest. My main thing, I'll know that we've done a good job when the community says that they're happy with what we've done and they're happy with the processes and the recommendations that we put forward. So I guess my connection to my parents is they were community focused in the sixties and seventies and eighties. And, you know, right at this moment, I'm continuing that, that community focus as far as, um, you know, articulating what civilians need and what's the rights of every civilian. What do you think uh, Rocky and Joan would be saying to you if they if they were still alive and uh, knew you'd got this job? What would they what would they advice would they be giving you? Well, they often talked about urgent patience, you know, <laughs> and and being you know and being in that yin yang situation. And I agree with that. Having worked at the Department of Education and worked in government, I think that because it's the people's money and it's taxpayers' money. Things can't happen quickly. There are processes. There are checks and balances. That's the, the the patient part. The urgent part is that we should have dealt with environmental racism 30, 40 years ago, right? So you have to be able to go into these committees and this change management work, and you've got to be urgently patient. Wow, that that's sage advice. Augie Jones, I hope we'll talk to you again when you've got your work all done and we can check back with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura, and uh, for giving voice to this. And, and we, we, we really appreciate it. And we'd love to have a chance to update you later on. No doubt we'll be back to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love that idea of urgent patience. It sounds like something that could be employed or should be employed right across the spectrum of, of climate change, especially as the country and the world work towards solutions. I, I also think about the fact that Augie Jones is really taking this on with a great degree of seriousness about the community. And I think it just shows that it's very important not just to strike a panel of people, but to make sure that it's the right people who are on the panel who have a diverse point of view about how to tackle these kinds of challenges. My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an Herboriginal. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. 
But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. They've got the task of telling the Minister of Climate Change what he should do. And the Minister, Stephen Gilboa, is bound by legislation to respond. In their first annual report, the Net Zero Advisory Body has a long list for Gilboa. The members from business, academia, and both the public and private sector were appointed by the federal government to give independent advice about getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Three of those members join me now. Catherine Abreu is the founder and executive director of Destination Zero, focused on climate action and the global energy transition. Simon Donner is a climate scientist and professor in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia. And Sarah Oud is the CEO of Propulsion Quebec, working in the electric transportation sector. Hello to all of you. Hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. I just want to go to the end of the report first. At the conclusion, you quote this seven-year time frame um, that you say it's meant to be the implementation period for climate change mitigation. That seems awfully short. And you list 25 of what you call pieces of advice. We're going to get into some of those in a second, but I'm just wondering generally, how well do you think Canadians and their governments are prepared to come to grips with what you say is needed? Catherine, let's start with you. So a big part of the message that we're trying to convey with this annual report is that we really need to be shifting our thinking around climate action in Canada from an approach that's really focused on reducing emissions incrementally, so, you know, cutting emissions sector by sector, to an approach that's at a systems level and really targets structural change. I think at this point, given the scale of impacts from climate change that Canadians are already experiencing, I do think that Canadians understand big things need to happen, big changes need to be made, but we don't yet have a vision in Canada for what that looks like, where it's going to take us. So that's why also a big part of our recommendations are around creating that vision. Simon, what about you? I would add that the reason it's so important to um, sort of set this long-term plan to really think about, okay, what would Canada look like if we achieve net zero emissions and how, if we know what that's going to look like, what decisions do we have to make today to get there? The reason that's so important is the decisions we make are different if you're looking for incremental emissions reductions. We want to reduce emissions by 20% versus we want to eliminate them in the long term. You know, it's the difference between saying, well, maybe we'll blend some ethanol into our gasoline versus let's get rid of gasoline-powered vehicles, right? And, and so we really, what so much of what the advisory body is doing is trying to have that long-term vision of saying, what is necessary to get to net zero? What are the sort of transformational actions that are going to be necessary? And what are choices and decisions that we can make now, the federal government can make now to sort of get us on that road? And Sarah, what, what do you have to say about this? I think it's also important that we consider that this is a global race and that everybody else is is having this conversation and that if we want a systemic reform, we also need to approach this from an opportunity perspective. 
Now, as I said, there, there is an awful lot in this report, and I read all of it, I'll have you know. But I want to, <laughs> I want to focus on the issue of modeling, um, using data to analyze what the climate future could look like. And I, I know for a lot of listeners, it may not sound all that sexy, but, but it, you warn that there's a big challenge here. What's the problem? Simon, why don't you start us off? Well, one of the challenges is that the uh, we're trying to assess, you know, what is the imp- what is going to be the impact of different policies? If we make a certain choice, how is that going to affect our emissions? And that's the type of modeling that's being discussed here. What's, what's challenging is the models that exist are often, you know, they're going to be trained on, you know, the past economy experiences we've had in the past. But we're talking about you know, transformational actions, creating new industries, using technology that doesn't necessarily exist. And so it's not very easy to represent in models. The reason that's, that creates a challenge, we may end up being biased towards certain types of policies. Like the models may suggest something is going to be more effective than it actually would be or less effective than it would actually be. And that could affect our decision making. Right. We get, well, when in reading that section, I, I it, it almost seemed to me as though you were suggesting that government's kind of taking a shot in the dark when it, it forges ahead with climate measures and climate actions without relying on good data or modeling to know how it will play out. I, I think one thing that's really important for, for us to clarify is, you know, we're not saying, oh, we don't have enough data to start, right? What we're saying is there's more certainty than uncertainty. So, you know, we have enough information, we have enough technological development, we have enough policy tools to be really doing that systems level change and driving emissions down more deeply right now. And at the same time, we need more and better data and we need different ways of modeling in order to envision this kind of transformed social economic landscape that we are moving towards. But it does seem in reading the report that there are other nations that are doing a much better job of this than than Canada. And and this is for any one of you who want to tackle this. What are they doing that Canada isn't? For for people who are close followers of sort of climate action in Canada, you would know that uh, our emissions reporting, there's a two-year lag, data lag, between the reporting of emissions and, and the, the year that's being reported on. So right now, you know, we would have data on 2021 emissions, for example, right? And so one of the things we're calling for is what can we do to reduce that gap? And what can we do to make it, instead of doing annual reports, make them more quarterly? And there are some other countries that have been successful at doing this. There are many that also are not, but we think Canada has the capability to do this. And so it's it's a small point, right? It seems like a minor piece of advice, but you reducing that that time lag will help us a lot in evaluating the impact of policies that have been put into place. Uh, I understand what you're saying, of course, but the EU and other nations are ahead of Canada on this. Why does it seem that, that this country is behind? I mean, I think a big part of of that and you know simon please come in here is because we haven't you know we've been very reliant on a couple of existing models that we use to source much of our climate data in canada Um, and this is not necessarily a criticism of those models but there hasn't necessarily been a um as much of an innovative take on modeling in Canada so far as there has been in other jurisdictions. That being said, we've seen some changes in that recently with um, several consortiums of modelers getting together to say, hey, we actually think Canada can be doing better here and there's 
lots of space for innovation. And so in part, our recommendations around the governance systems and the modeling is to say to that community of actors in Canada, like, we've got your back. We see that you're trying to innovate and improve the way that Canada does things here. And we're going to make sure that the Canadian government sees value in that as well and invests in it. Okay, let's move on from modeling. Just in in the last few days, um, we have heard both the head of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Beral, who who was in Ottawa, and the Natural Resource Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, talking about the need for Canada to move more quickly on mining for so-called critical minerals for electric vehicle batteries, um, accelerating the environmental assessment and permitting process. Um, you talk about this in your report, too, and say that, that approvals do need to be sped up. But uh, I wonder, maybe you can start us off on this, Sarah. Are you concerned that that in, in trying to scramble to get these minerals out of the ground, because these are going to come from mining, almost all of it, could that come at the expense of the environment and Indigenous rights? These are, are, are multiple um, issues that needs to be tackled. We definitely need to uh, accelerate our actions to make sure that we produce locally as much as we can, because in Canada we have one of the highest um, environmental and, and social policies. So it's 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 definitely something that needs to be accelerated, but we, we need to make sure that it's we still keep those 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 policies as as you know at the highest global standards. We're already seeing instances where there is resistance from environmental groups or indigenous peoples to having these kinds of mining enterprises in their backyards. And and you say we'd still keep those high standards. How does that square with needing to speed things up, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, that is really the critical question, right? And we, we try and get at this a little bit in our report by talking about um, how we can revitalize, modernize the regulatory process in Canada to rebuild trust in that process for Canadians. And we also acknowledge that a big piece of that trust building exercise is about ensuring community benefit from some of these projects. So, you know, I think often we talk about um, social consent, right? So we say, oh, we want uh, project proponents and and the decision-making bodies that are approving those projects say, oh, we, we want to make sure that the communities that are impacted um, kind of provide their Uh, they're okay for this project. But we don't often go a step further and say, we want to make sure that the projects that are happening in these communities are providing benefits directly to those communities. Simon? It's not about the number of regulations. It's about the process. And and really what our advice is, is giving, we're not saying anything about regulations needing to be removed. We're just pointing to the evidence that if we just give better guidance uh, to regulators, on how to go through how to go through these um, the process of evaluating you know evaluating new projects, how to make sure you know applications are sort of uniform, and how to make sure uh, that in the case of community benefits and indigenous participation that it, it's at the beginning of the project and not brought in later on. Obviously, you've nodded to a really important element of all of this when we're talking about consultation and bringing people along. You talk about the importance of having an Indigenous perspective and Indigenous participation in this. And you all, you're upfront about the fact that there aren't any Indigenous people on in the advisory group. Why is that needed? Well, I mean, there are countless reasons that that's needed, but I, I'll, I'll start with one. 
Um, and that is that Indigenous communities are on the forefront of many of these solutions, many of these transformative actions that we know have to happen at scale across the country um, and across different kinds of communities if we're going to, to get to our 2050 goal. So, for instance, Indigenous communities are really on the forefront of renewable energy projects, ownership and generation in Canada. Um, they're incredible success stories of, of Indigenous communities attaining energy autonomy, creating good jobs in their community by building out renewable energy. How do we make sure that the policies we're developing around energy in Canada um, actually put that success at the center and make sure that those policies are helping to build on that success and making sure that we're locking in that kind of success in other communities across the country. Um, so that's one, one big answer. And I'll also say that we are anticipating the minister will be appointing new members to the Net Zero Advisory Body in the next few months. And we are really looking forward to having new colleagues um, in Indigenous communities join us in the coming months. Uh, thanks, Catherine. And, and I, I, I did read that as well. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, though, um, Simon or Sarah, you can you can jump in on this. What is the advisory group missing by not having that voice at the table with you? Well, we are definitely missing a certain voice, a certain reality that needs to be shared. But one other point that I wanted to, to make is that Indigenous communities are also living um, the impact of climate change at the very concrete level. So uh, um, it's also very important if we want to do a, a structural reform and structural change to, to really think that through with um, Indigenous communities everywhere in Canada. Simon? And I would say in terms of just the implementation of projects and getting us to net zero, you know, incorporating and working with uh, Indigenous uh, people and First Nations communities at the very beginning of all these sorts of projects, it's not just that it's the right thing to do, but all of the advice we heard, all the consultations we heard during the process of working on this report was it it's also the more effective thing to do. Okay, last question. Minister Stephen Gilbeau, who, who is responsible for appointing members of the panel, we asked him for, for an interview about your report, and, and he said no because he, he wants to respond to the report, and he says he will do that within a 30-day period. Um, I'm wondering, what's at stake if he ignores or largely ignores your advice? Who wants to tackle that? <laughs> oh, everybody's jumping in. Hey, Catherine, why don't we start with you? I mean, you know, Laura, you're covering these issues very well. And and you know that in the last six years, Canada has gone through a climate policy revolution, right? We have gone from, you know, very few climate policies at the federal scale to a suite of climate policies that are being unfolded at the same time, which is exactly what we need at the policy level. That being said, our emissions haven't really been decreasing in that time, right? So we're still not seeing the evidence of those policies working in the real world in the ways that we need them to work in order for us to fulfill our commitments globally when it comes to the climate crisis. And I think that's the risk if our advice gets ignored because that's really where we're wanting to zero in. We're wanting to solve for that issue. We're saying, hey, if we keep putting these policies out and they keep not delivering the emissions reductions and the transformation that we know they need to deliver, then we're clearly not getting some things right. And here are the gaps that we are seeing as 
an independent expert advisory body with a bunch of experience and filling those gaps is going to be necessary to to actually delivering the real world um, results that all of us are looking for. Simon? We have the luxury in many ways of thinking long-term, right? It's the, This is the year 2023 and we are thinking about what it's going to take to get to net zero in 2050. So we're thinking for a 27 year time period, how do we sort of reverse engineer if we know what 2050 needs to look like, what do we need to do now? And, you know, governments don't usually work on that sort of time scale. And so <laughs> we have this, we have the luxury to really think long-term and say, listen, if we wanna be there and we wanna make sure Canada is still prospering, we wanna make sure there's a quality and justice and, and all these solutions that are implemented, here are the things you need to do over the over the next few years. And Sarah, last word to you. Well, what's at stake here is not achieving our goal of getting to net zero by 2050. Uh, the, the people of Canada have elected this government um, to achieve uh, many different objectives, and this one is is definitely one of them to to us. It's it's one of the most important thing to achieve, and we recommend those advice to get there with the implication and the engagement of Canadians with a an economic benefit for, for, for Canada in the end. And this is what we think is, is the right path to do. So um, so we, we are confident that, that this will be taken into consideration. All right. And let's also remember that if the minister is not going to take our advice, he's supposed to tell us why. Okay. Well, That's right. I, <laughs> well, there you go. That's the next thing for us to watch for. And I, I'm pretty certain that we will be speaking again. But for now, I just want to thank all three of you for making the time to talk to me. And uh, we will speak again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Now, you heard the panel speak about the need to have Indigenous representatives working alongside them. Right now, there are six vacancies to be filled. I asked Ariel Duranger of Indigenous Climate Action what she thinks of the absence of those voices on the advisory body. I'm not surprised by that fact because it tends to be the case within these advisory bodies that they don't know how to put forward adequate representation of diverse Indigenous peoples from Canada, Métis, Inuit, First Nation. And secondarily, I think that it's very, very obvious when you start to read the annual report that there lacks a real understanding of how Indigenous rights need to be upheld, Canada's fiduciary responsibility to Indigenous peoples. And instead, we kind of see this degraded um, positioning of Indigenous peoples' rights and knowledge within this as stakeholders and critical information to be added, as opposed to real rights that need to be upheld at the same level as colonial governments. I also asked Climate Change Minister Stephen Guilbeault for a response. A spokeswoman for the minister sent an email saying they are in the midst of filling the vacancies in the, quote, very near future, and that Indigenous representation is a key priority. We'll be watching. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. 
I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.